Well, good morning, Orchard Hills. <clears throat> Guys, we would love it if you came to Man Camp. It's an awesome, awesome time, so we would love your presence there. Um, I am Sutton Wirt. It's an honor to get to be with you all this morning to, to worship the Lord, to look at His Word. Um, it's an honor to serve here on your pastoral staff. Um, if, I, if you're new, if I haven't met you, please grab me after service. I'd love to say hi and get to know you. Well, last week, we wrapped up a series um, on what is the gospel. What is the gospel? And we defined the gospel as good news, specifically as the good news of Jesus, who he is and what he did that changes everything. We looked at why we need the gospel. We, look at how, we looked at how it works in our lives. Um, and last week, Scott uh, looked at how God has called us to be a part of his mission to share the gospel uh, with the ends of the earth, starting specifically with the people who are closest to us. And now we're going to look toward Easter. So we're going to pivot a little bit, um, but really we're going to hone in on the actual historical events of the gospel, um, the final weeks of the life of Jesus as he moves deliberately toward the cross and toward the resurrection that follows. So to do that, we'll be in the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 11 today. Um, I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn there if, if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, um, we've got some in the seats in front of you underneath. It's on page 1063 of your church Bibles. <clears throat> so we'll be in John for the next few weeks. Um, now, John is one of four gospel accounts um, that we have in Scripture. And these different accounts are from four different guys. And so each one gives us a little bit different of a perspective of Jesus, but it helps us to see a full picture of who he was and who he is even now for us, his people. Um, and John is the most unique of these four gospel accounts. Uh, he really gives us the most up-close and personal view of Jesus, and that's because he was one of uh, the three men who were closest to Jesus, his kind of inner circle of Peter, James, and John. So in, in giving us this intimate, close picture of Jesus, um, what John does is he is really, he said he wrote his book so that we might believe, and so he's inviting us to step into his shoes <clears throat> to also get close to Jesus, to walk with him, to, to look at what he did and how he lived and how he treated people and how he loved. And so as we look at this story today, um, what I want to do really is just hold up Jesus. And I want all of us to look at him and to see the way that he loves his people, the way that he cares for his friends and know that he has the same sort of love and care for you and for me. And specifically, pay attention to how Jesus cares for people who are suffering. See how God himself responds to our pain and our sorrow. It might just change your life. Well, let's pray, um, and then we will dive in together. Well, Lord Jesus, we are yours, and we have already... Um, yeah, just gotten to, to celebrate you this morning, to, to meditate on the beauty of who you are. Um, and we just want to continue to do that as we look at your word today. Lord, would you reveal more of your heart for us through your word, through your spirit. Holy Spirit, would you make Jesus more beautiful to us? Would you convince us that he is the best thing for us, the one that our souls were made for, the one our souls are longing for and hungry and thirsty for? 
Don't let us be satisfied with anything else. Speak to us today, Lord. We love you. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. John 11, uh, like I said, 1063 of your church Bibles. Um, and we pick up in verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So let's set set the stage here. We've got two sisters and a brother, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Um, And they are some of Jesus' closest friends. Uh, Next week, we'll see them giving a party for Jesus. Uh, Luke, in his gospel account, talks about Jesus spending time at their house. And so they seem to be some of his closest friends, some of the people he's most tight with. Um, In fact, it says in verse 5 that that Jesus loves them. Uh, And Martha says, Jesus, the one you love is ill. But then, get this, in verse 6, it says, So, because he loved them, When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? That does not make any sense. Jesus loved them so much that when Lazarus was sick, he didn't do anything? It's kind of confusing. Let's keep going. Next verse, it says, Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Now, if we'd been reading the story up to this point, um, we would know that Jesus... As Jesus' ministry grew, as his popularity grew, um, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of that time grew angrier and angrier because the things that Jesus was doing, the miracles he was performing, the things he was saying, he was saying that, that he and the Father were one. He was equating himself with God, and so that was blasphemy, and they were starting to get mad about it, and they were getting pretty close to wanting to kill him. And so Jesus had recently left Judea, which is this area around Jerusalem, which is the capital where the temple and the priest and the Jewish leaders were. Um, So he had left that area because it was getting dangerous. And now he says, we're going back. Because Bethany, this village where Martha and Mary and Lazarus live, was only two miles just to the east side of Jerusalem. So the disciples know that this means bad news for Jesus and for them, consequently. And so they're like, really, Jesus? Are you, are you sure about that? And, and Jesus says, yeah. Yeah, Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going to go wake him up. And they're like, well, uh, that's good, right? I mean, if he's sleeping, then he's going to recover, and everything will be fine. And Jesus says, no, he's actually dead. I, I mean, he's dead. And so then Jesus says in verse 15, he says, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now again, this is a little confusing. First, Jesus delays to go help his friends because he loves them. And now he outright says, I'm glad I wasn't there. What's going on here? Well, let's keep going. They go back to Judea. They come to Bethany, Jesus and his disciples, and, and they find when they get there that Lazarus has been dead and in the tomb already four days. And so he's not just dead, he's, 
dead dead. Um, if, you've seen the, if you've seen The Prince's Bride, um, there's a difference between mostly dead and all dead. Um, Miracle Max says when you're all dead, then the only thing left to do is go through their pockets and look for loose change. Um, <clears throat> so that's how dead Lazarus is. But remember, Jesus deliberately chose not to come days ago. He could have gotten there, maybe. He could have been there in time to heal Lazarus, but he didn't. He chose not to. So Lazarus is really dead. And people uh, have come around Mary and Martha to help them mourn. That was the culture and custom at the time, that people would mourn with you, would cry and weep with you. Um, So these people come. And in verse 20, it says, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Man, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt something similar rise up within you when you were suffering or struggling or grieving? Lord, if you had been here, this bad thing would not have happened. If you'd shown up, this person wouldn't have died. If you'd shown up, this sickness wouldn't have happened. This tragedy wouldn't have taken place in our lives. Where were you? What were you doing? Essentially, she's saying, Jesus, I know we're your friends and you love us. So if that's true and you had the power to do something about it, I know you would have. I know you would have raised Lazarus. I know you would have healed him. But he did let Lazarus die, you know. Jesus chose not to be there and he allowed Lazarus to die. And so here's where the rubber meets the road for you And I, as we follow Jesus, we tend to think that our suffering is a sign of God's absence. That if something bad happens to us or to someone we love, that either God isn't in it, or he's not really in control, or he's not really good, or he just doesn't love us. Surely, God would not allow these bad things to happen if he cared. But do you see what we're doing there when we say those things, when we think those things? We're we're really being a little short-sighted. Because what we're doing is we're equating the reality of God's eternal, big picture, knows the future love with our immediate experience. What we fail to realize is that God is present. He is in control. He sees way more than we do. And he is working everything, even our darkest moments, for greater good than we could ever imagine. And so, Christian, your suffering is not an indication of God's absence. Rather, it is a doorway to more of his presence. Your suffering is not an indication of God's absence. Rather, it is a doorway to more of his presence. Through these circumstances that they were in, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are about to know Jesus in a whole new and deeper way than they ever thought possible. Let's keep going. Martha continues in in verse 22. She says, But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. So Martha doesn't really understand what's going on. She's confused and she doesn't see what's happening. But even in that, even in her doubt, she's clinging to Jesus. She's holding on to him. She's believing him. Now let's turn to the other sister. Let's look at Mary and notice how she experiences Jesus' presence. So Jesus asks Martha, he says, go back to the house, bring your sister Mary. She does. Mary comes out to meet him with, with the people mourning and crying, crying and weeping around her. Um, and then in verse 32, it says, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's that same question. But notice this first. Notice how Jesus treats her differently than he does Martha. Mary is a different person, and so she needs something different in her pain. And so Jesus knows exactly what each of us need in our sorrow, in our grief, in our pain. And so he treats Mary in a different way. He doesn't give her words of encouragement like he did Martha. Let's see what he does. In verse 33, it says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35, that's the shortest verse in the Bible, in case you're wondering. Just two words. If you need a scripture memory verse, that's uh, pretty easy. Um, Jesus wept. But those two simple words carry incredible, incredible weight. Because here we see Jesus, fully man, but also fully God, the God of the universe, weeping with his friends. Weeping with his friends. How beautiful is that? Well, church, know this, that whatever suffering you're going through, whatever pain you're experiencing, whatever loss you are grieving, your Savior, your God, sits with you in it, and he weeps too. Amen. He weeps too. He's with you and he weeps for you. He weeps for the pain of loss and he weeps for the sting of death. And he weeps for every evil thing that has ever wounded any one of the creatures that he made in his image. He weeps with you. He weeps for you. And what John is, is showing us, I believe, is that even though Jesus could have prevented your pain, just like he could have prevented their loss. Even though Jesus could have prevented it, even though he knows that there's incredible joy just around the corner, he is never above sitting with you and your suffering. Suffering with you, weeping with you, not offering trite words or cheesy Christian sayings, but grieving with you. Know that. He's with you and he weeps. Verse 36, it says, So the Jews said, See how he loved them. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Notice that question. It's kind of similar to what Mary and Martha were saying. Couldn't Jesus have done something? Couldn't he have showed up and prevented this loss from happening? But you see, the world says, that if you love someone, you will do anything in your power to spare them from suffering. The world says that you'll do anything you can to make their life perfect and easy and 
comfortable and fun. But that's not the way the love of God works. And really, that's a pretty lousy way to live. It's a lousy way to parent or to lead other people. If you love someone, insulating them and keeping them from everything that might harm them isn't really loving. It doesn't help them to grow. And so that's not the way that the love of God works. The path of God's love leads through suffering, not away from it. The path of God's love leads through suffering, not away from it. But it doesn't lead to suffering for suffering's sake. God isn't deliberately trying to torture you or make your life difficult. He's not a cruel controller. He's a gentle, loving king. And so even though the path does lead to suffering, it leads through it, through it to the joy and the glory and the hope on the other side. Let's see what happens. Verse 38, it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. King James says, uh, Lord, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) For he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Man, isn't that awesome? Ah, This story just gets me every time. Um, I bet no one got up that day thinking, man, we're going to see someone rise from the dead today. I bet people could not believe what they were seeing. I bet Mary and Martha couldn't believe that that their brother was back and the joy that they felt. I bet it was beautiful. And I bet they could not take their eyes off Jesus. I bet they couldn't stop hugging him and thanking him. And I bet they were in awe of who he was and what he had just done. You see, rather than their suffering being a sign of God's absence, it was a doorway to more of his presence, a doorway to more of his presence. Well, friends, there's a lot for us to learn here. Um, I'm just going to hit three quick quick things, um, but I encourage you to spend some time in this passage this week. It is a beautiful, beautiful story. So I know that there's a lot of us who are suffering and struggling and mourning. Um, And if you're not now, then you probably have before. Um, And if you haven't before, then you most assuredly will. Suffering is inevitable in this broken, sin-sick world that we live in. You can't escape it. You can't run from it. And that's the lie. That's the lie that the world wants us to believe, that we can somehow insulate ourselves from any bad things happening 
that we could somehow live in this protective bubble where we'll never get hurt and never get sick or never lose anyone we love. But that is not the truth. That's not the reality of the world that we live in. And so shed that lie and step into what God wants to do through the difficulties in your life, what he wants to do through your suffering. The glorious hope that we have as people who trust in Jesus is that he is doing far more through our suffering and beyond it than we could ever imagine. So first thing here, um, it says, God is using our suffering to display his glory and to help others to believe. Um, We see this in verse 4, where Jesus said that this is for his glory. In verse 15, where he says that I'm I'm glad because it's going to help you guys believe. Displaying God's glory, his, his value, his worth, his beauty to the world is what you were created to do. It's what you were created to do. And there is no place in your life where you will find more joy or peace or fulfillment than giving God glory through your life. And others believing in him because of your witness, because of the way that you're suffering, there's hardly any sweeter joy than that. Scott talked about it last week. What great joy there is in bringing good news and seeing people come to, li- come to life in Jesus. And so while the world is tempting us to, to try to enjoy these shallow things and to insulate ourselves, God wants an even deeper joy for us. He's inviting us out of these shallow pleasures, these things that, that, that make us think we're insulated and safe and secure, and he's inviting us into an adventure where there is risk, where there is loss, but through that suffering, there's the joy of sharing him with others. There's the joy of your life glorifying him, glorifying God. That's what you were made for. God is using our suffering to display his glory and to help others believe. That's where our deepest joy is. Number two, through our suffering, we are experiencing Jesus in greater intimacy than we ever could have before. At the end of this day, Mary and Martha and Lazarus knew Jesus on a whole new level. He took their greatest loss and he transformed it into a wild victory. And I would imagine if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, then you've experienced this in your own life. You've seen him turn broken things into beautiful things. You've seen him turn graves into gardens. You've seen him turn the the biggest defeats of your life into victories for eternity. And even though you wouldn't have asked for the pain or you wouldn't have asked for that loss, on the other side of it, I bet you knew God better. I bet you saw the world in a whole different way. Our suffering is a doorway to more of his presence. And so really there's one of two ways that we can live. Either we can approach God and we can approach this church thing as, as wanting to know God through suffering or we can just try to use God to avoid suffering. That's the trap. I'm afraid that's what a lot of us think is going to happen from a relationship with Jesus or or going to church. We just want to use him to avoid our suffering. That's not biblical faith. That's not the plan he has for you. He wants you to know him even more through your suffering. And finally, number three, our ultimate hope in suffering is nothing less and resurrection. I think that we forget that what God has promised, those who love and follow and suffer with him, is nothing less than full resurrection life. 
new spiritual life here and now the abundant life that he's given us and new spiritual and physical life later. And y'all, I think the enemy has robbed us of that hope. I think the enemy has robbed us of the hope of resurrection. When I say the word heaven, I bet what comes to a lot of our minds is clouds, harps, some vague kind of disembodied existence where it's just an eternal worship service and there's choir robes and an organ. (laughs) That's pretty sad. That's not a heaven that I look forward to. That's not something that gets me excited to suffer for Jesus here and now. But the good news is that that's not the biblical hope of heaven. The hope that you and I have and the hope that Jesus died for is a new heavens and a new earth coming together, God and his people living together forever on a world that's totally restored. Everything that you love about this world improved and redeemed and renewed. Everyone that you love who died in faith, redeemed and restored and more themselves than they ever were before laughing and talking and dancing and a wedding and a feast, Christ and his bride coming together to adventure and continue to live together throughout eternity. That's our hope, y'all. And we're letting some clouds and harps steal it from us. That's not going to motivate you to suffer. That's not going to motivate you to trust the Lord in your difficulty and your grieving and your mourning. Church, there's more. There's more to come. He's bigger than we thought that he was. And this redemption is bigger than we think that it is. Don't let the enemy steal it. And that resurrection, on that day that Martha was actually talking about, that's what this story is just a little preview of. That's what we see in the resurrection of Jesus, and that's what Paul says Jesus is just the first fruits of. Jesus was just the first one. And for every one of us who's following him, resurrection is coming. Amen? All right. Well, as we turn our hearts to communion today, um, I hope that you have seen the heart of our Savior a little more clearly. I hope that you've been encouraged to lift your head and to cling to him, even when it feels like he's not there, even when it feels like he he isn't doing what's right or he isn't doing what's loving. He knows, he sees, he, he knows what's just around the corner. He has so much good for you, church. The Psalms say, how great is the goodness that the Lord has stored up for those who fear him. There's so much more. So you can trust him. You can trust them. And one, one final thing I want you to see here is, is this. In choosing to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus sealed his own fate. Jesus sealed his own fate. This event is the final straw that, that sets off the Jewish leaders and that sets in motion the events leading to Jesus' death. Right after this, the Jewish leaders, there's a, a scene in the Gospel of John, and they say, okay, it's time to kill him. And so what is happening is that in choosing to give life to his friend on this day, Jesus chose death for himself. That's the God that we serve. That's the way that he loves us. He chose death for himself so that you could have life. 
that is a love that keeps being more amazing to me the more that I think about it, the more that I experience it. It's a love that weeps with his friends at the pain and sorrow of death. And it's a love that doesn't shrink back in fear from that very same death, but instead plunges into the belly of the beast and rises to conquer it once and for all. That's our Savior. That's the way he loves us. He chose the death that you and I earned so that we could choose the life that he earned for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is no one like you. There is no God like you. There is no king like you. There is no one so perfect in might and power and wisdom, yet who stoops to be with the lowly, who, who sits in suffering with your people, who, who weeps with us, who mourns with us, and yet who doesn't allow us to sit there, but who calls us to the glorious hope of resurrection to follow. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room who is suffering and grieving and mourning today. I pray for the wounds, Lord, that, uh, that your people have sustained as a result of uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Lord, would you bind us up this morning? Would your presence be near to every heart in this room? Lord, I pray that we would know that you're with us, that you're for us, that you have great good stored up for us that these light and momentary afflictions that we're experiencing as we follow you are just a shadow, that they pale in comparison. Paul says they're not even worth comparing to the glory that's coming. Jesus, you said you've gone to prepare a place for us, and we cannot imagine the, the beauty that is to come. Lord, fill our hearts with hope. Hope for what you're going to do in this life, transforming our greatest places of defeat into places of victory. And Lord, hope for when we don't have the answers and we don't see the victory. Hope for resurrection to come. Oh Lord, work in our hearts now. Help us to trust you in the places that we feel like we can't, where it doesn't make sense, where we don't understand why you've done what you've done. Help us to trust you. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. We put our faith and our hope in you alone, Jesus. Thank you for this glorious hope that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.